Often in homicides, as we all know, it's those who know us best who kill us most. This elderly woman did see someone, a man, leaving the house, in the house and then leaving the house on the night the two young women were killed. Welcome to Life and Crimes. I'm Andrew Rule. This week, we're reinvestigating the murder of two young women at Easy Street, Collingwood in 1977. If you don't know anything about this story, we've done an episode on it called The Horror of Easy Street. So if you want a primer, it's in your podcast feed. It's one of the great murder mysteries of Australian history. It's part of the memories of uh, Melbourne in particular, how two young women, lifelong friends, similar names, Suzanne Armstrong and Susan Bartlett, end up renting a worker's cottage in Easy Street, Collingwood, and are both murdered there. The twist, of course, is that Susan Armstrong's infant son, Gregory, was in the house at the time, uh, although unharmed, was left in a cot in an adjoining room from where his dead mother was and was severely dehydrated by the time the alarm was raised. And I think it's a combination of all those aspects, as well as the name of the street, interestingly. It's an arresting name, Easy Street, that has made this crime stick in our collective memories in a way that some other crimes have not. Former colleague of mine, Helen Thomas, long-time journalist around Australia in many fields, has always been fascinated by this case and has finally got around to writing probably a fairly definitive account of it in which she uncovers some new elements. It's called Murder on Easy Street, Melbourne's Most Notorious Cold Case. It's published by the Nero imprint of Black Ink, uh, prominent Melbourne publishers. So I'm very pleased to welcome Helen to the podcast. Helen, welcome to Life and Crimes. What made you want to write a book about Easy Street, given that it is a very well-ploughed paddock? Andrew, thanks for, for having me on to talk about it. And I think you've really outlined most of the reasons. I mean, like you, I was a young journalist when the two girls, the two young women were murdered and the young boy was left in in his cot and as you say was left there for a couple of days and a couple of nights and by the time he was found was in a pretty dehydrated state as we can all imagine um so that i guess you know the, the the horror of it without overusing that word or misusing that word was pretty stark that two young women could be brutally stabbed to death in their own home. Yeah. The other thing, to be honest, was it always struck me as odd that right from the start, everyone said there were no witnesses. Now, I, I don't know why. Maybe it was because I was a young um, woman in Melbourne and also a young journalist yeah. in Melbourne. I just, I just always wondered that. Uh, how does this story unfold in the big picture? I think in the big picture, the narrative that, um, police have always um, had since the women were found was yep. that somehow someone, a man, came through the front door, yep. through the front of the house, attacked Suzanne Armstrong, who had the front bedroom first, yep. and then in some way Sue Bartlett 
who must have been out the back of the house, whether it was in the third room, which was her yep. bedroom, or even further out into the lounge or the or the, um, the kitchen, we'll, we'll never really know for sure. Yep. Uh, somehow she's come into the hallway. The two have had a terrible fight. And, a few, you know, both women struggled so hard. And yet Sue Bartlett particularly sustained more than 50 stab wounds. Yep. I mean, collectively, I think according to the the coroner's brief, they were stabbed 82 times. So you get a sense of just how frenzied at least one attack, you know, perhaps if, if we believe that's what happened, that Suzanne was brutally attacked first and then Sue met the attacker in the hallway, that second attack was quite a frenzied attack, I yep. think. And, and young Gregory Armstrong was in the second bedroom, hopefully asleep when all this was happening. You would think so. How old was he at that time? Uh, was 16 months old. 16 months. So, of course, he's uh, now a, a mature, uh, early middle-aged man uh, yep. and can't remember anything about his mother or anything about the incident because he was so young. Is that right? Yeah, and, and understandably, he's, he hasn't wanted to speak to me no. uh, through the, the making, you know, through the writing or researching of the book. He, in fact, has only spoken to one journalist, hasn't he, in, in his time, in the you know, last 42 years. And I absolutely understand that. I mean, you know, enough already about yeah. speaking about something that really, you, you know, I'd imagine he can't remember. No, of course, he knows no more about it than anyone else. But it, yeah. it is his existence this little boy that gives this story an extra resonance, I think. Oh, I, I absolutely agree. Also, of course, uh, a little like the Jill Maher case, this uh, has a certain resonance uh, for, you know, the inner suburban um, enclaves that uh, were existed even in the 70s. Uh, these two young women were, well, one was a teacher uh, the other one um, was her friend. They're both from the country, but they'd moved down to Melbourne. They'd moved into inner suburban Collingwood in a way that became increasingly common in that decade and the next decades as a, a new generation of people moved into the inner city. So they were one of a wave of settlers in the inner city. And they belonged to a group of people that, you know, the likes of you and I and others would have known or could have known. Is that true? Absolutely. Yeah, in fact, yeah. I, I'm not sure where you were then, Andrew, where you were living, but I was living, I was sharing a little house, a little worker's cottage probably, certainly a little terrace house. Yeah. Um, it was smaller than the one the girls were in, but in Carlton, in North Carlton at the time. So You it, identified. Cert- well, yeah. I mean, through doing this over the last couple of years, people have said, oh, you know, did it, did it resonate with you in the sense that it make you fearful? Now, I, I don't think that was the case, but... These women, these two, you know, Sue and Suzanne, were only a few years older than me. So in that sense, I guess it did, although I was never thinking, ooh, you know, that could happen to me or it could happen to some friends. But I do think it it made all of us think, oh, okay, you know, we just got to be a little bit more careful, I guess. But I don't remember being sort of haunted by it in that sense. No, but it is relevant to our lives. Now, let's, for the benefit of the listeners run through what we know about the two young women. I mean, we call them girls, but, you know, these two young women who are, I think, the uh, the classic Janis Joplin, Jimi Hendrix age of 27, were they? 28 and 20. Suzanne was a bit older, 28 and 27. Yeah. Um, and, yep, they, um, one of their friends tells the story in the book about how they were, uh, they travelled down from um, 
where they were living up in Benalla Way to see the Beatles in a bus. Back in <laughs> the 60s. The, yeah. Well, yeah, yeah, they were really big into that sort of... They were big in... They loved music, you know. Um, they loved going to the theatre. They loved food. They were actually early foodies, from what I can gather, particularly Susan Bartlett. She was... They loved Greek food, which... Yeah. Um, so, you know, they were doing things that we all can relate to. Right. And, and the more you... you you talk to people who knew them, friends who remember them from that era, you know, people who taught with Sue at um, yeah. uh, Collingwood Education Centre and people who remember Suzanne just around the around the community, Collingwood community, always with Greg, usually on the back of a, the little um, bike she had. She had a little seat for him. They're, they're just people you would, you know, you would know and you'd probably like if you talk to, if you talk to them. Yeah. We've talked about... The police theorise a killer came through the front door. In the end, yep. which door the killer came through, it matters in some respects and not in others. Let's sort of run through uh, who these girls were, the murder scene, the post-murder scene, and then the theories of what might have happened and the suspects. So who were they really? Take us back to the start. What do we know about the two? That as you outlined at the top, they grew up um, and started going to school together. I think when they were sort of I don't know early teens or you know eleven or twelve. So yeah. they had that as their bedrock, if you like. Their cornerstone together was growing up in a uh, a local sort of rural setting. Where was that? Uh, it was in Benella. They went to Benella High School together. So that's north, uh, sort of northeast Victoria. Yeah, yeah. and um, Susan became a teacher. And I think she had one of her early postings at Broadford. And Suzanne did um, find work in and around the rural area and then moved into Melbourne and took some jobs. She was very keen, from what I can pick up, to start travelling. And she did that. Um, she did a lot of travelling, in fact, uh, when before all of us were travelling, if you know what I mean. Yeah. <laughs> and they joined up together. They sort of came together to bring it a bit closer to the date, you know, what we're talking about. Uh, in the mid-70s, she did a big trip. Suzanne um, did a big trip to Europe. Suzanne did a big trip, came back, got enough money again to go over and meet Sue, who was uh, by that stage in Greece. And they spent a lot of time zooming around the Greek islands together. Right. Then Sue came back to go back to work. Yep. And Suzanne stayed on, eventually meeting up with Greg's father, Yep. On the island of Naxos. So, so she met the man that would father her child, Greg. Yep. Yeah. Okay. Um, and then she came home uh, with Greg and asked Sue, from what I can gather, asked Sue to move in with her. Uh, they, I think, she'd found this little cottage in Easy Street. Yep. And so they moved in together. And Sue had been living in Richmond. Uh, and I think there was a bit of discussion with Susan Bartlett's uh, mum and her brother that. You know, her mum particularly was saying, you know, Richmond's such a nice place in Collingwood. Oh, yeah. You know, even then Collingwood was changing, but it was still a bit of a rough and tumble suburb. But, you know, Sue was Suzanne's best friend and Suzanne obviously needed help, you know, moving back into things yep. and also with Greg. Yep. And so they moved into 147 Easy Street. Right. So that sets the scene for what happened in the first week of January, I think it was. Of 1977. It was the first week, wasn't it? Yeah, it was the 10th of Jan. So. Oh, sorry, the second week of January. Um, yeah. I apologise for that wrong date. So 
Let's just run through what happened from the viewpoint of those who discovered the, the actual murder. So uh, tell the listeners how it came about that the world found out about this murder. Okay, so what we know on the last night of their lives, on that Monday night, yep. Martin Bartlett, Sue's brother, came yep. round with his girlfriend at the time and had dinner. He was fixing a stereo. He was being a, a good brother. And they had dinner, and when they left, uh, when that pair left, the girls were just settling in for a sort of normal night at home. I think Gregory had already gone to bed. Yeah. Exactly what happened after that, you know, as we say, at this point, we don't know. But what happened early the next morning was the people living next door that shared the wall, if you like, next door, realised, could hear Greg crying slightly, not, you know, wailing or anything, but could hear him didn't really think too much of it because, you know, he was a little boy, but were aware that, you know, he was there. And by the end of that day, though, it became apparent that for some reason the dog, their young puppy, was out uh, in the street. So The two dead women's puppy. Yeah, Suzanne and Susan had a, a young puppy. It wasn't really a puppy puppy, but it was, you know, it was a young dog. And he'd got out the back door because on one side of the house they shared the wall with yep. these um, people we're talking about. On the other side, there was a, a laneway, a little dunny lane. So oh. the dog had obviously nicked out the back at some point. Anyway, these two women who lived next door uh, took the dog in. Uh, have you named them in your book? Yes, Alona Stevens and Janet Powell. Right. They, they took the, the men and over the next couple of days tried to sort of make contact with the girls, left a note on the front door saying, hey, you know, we've got the dog. Come in when you, you know, get a chance. But no answer. But no answer. No one answered the door. There was sort of, there was just nothing except occasionally they'd hear Greg again crying. They're not crying. So, you know, and they were busy. They had jobs. They were going in and out. Um, in fact, Alona Stevens worked at the Age newspaper. No, no, she was still working at Truth at that oh, She point. was working at Truth newspaper at that stage, yeah. Yeah. Yep. And she eventually, you know, not too long after that, a year or so, she came to work at the Age. But... Eventually, on Thursday morning, they just thought, look, this is too weird. And Alona went in through the back door and found the two, well, the two bodies. And also, of course, Greg. Now, she backed out quite quickly. Janet was still in the, you know, the backyard next door. They called the police. It took a couple of calls to get the police to actually believe, you know, what they're saying. And in a sense, I sort of understand that because suddenly, you know, you get a call, there's two dead women next door. Anyway, they, the police came. Initially, it was just one young police officer and Alona had to sort of direct him to the back of the house. She didn't want him coming in because Susan, her body was at the front, almost at the front door yeah. um, in, the, in the hallway. So Alona brought him to the back. And once he realised that, yes, in fact, here was this, you know, double homicide scene... Yeah. He called, obviously, Homicide Squad and, you know, car loads full of detectives arrived. And that's when the detectives first entered the scene. Right. And give us the edited version of what happened next with the police, of what they did and didn't do. Well, what they did do, obviously, was go through the house and and note everything the forensic team eventually came to yep. after the detectives had been through. Very different setup from what I can understand, Andrew. You'd know better than I the, the procedures now. But yep. the detectives went through 
the forensic team, I think there were two or three people within the forensic team, came eventually. And basically they just collated what they were seeing and all the evidence, all the material evidence they could find that was collated, put in, you know, the relevant um, storage bags or whatever they were using at the time and photos were taken. And then one of the things they, they realised someone that they didn't know who at that point had left a note on the kitchen table under an ashtray asking Suzanne to call him right. and his his name was Barry. Yeah. So, of course, they had that as an early possible lead yeah. and they pursued that and they also realised that there was someone staying next door. That night, Alona and Janet had come home from their various work. As, as we say, Alona was working at Truth and they, Janet was running a um, Italian restaurant actually in Ligon Street right. up in Carlton yep. called Casanova. Yeah. And they came home and their house guest that night was one of Alona's uh, colleagues at Truth, who's a very well-known journalist, Andrew, called John Grant. John Grant, yes, yes. Yeah. And so from the start, I think it's fair to say that Barry, who very quickly turned out to be Barry Woodard, who had been going out with Suzanne a couple of... They'd gone out on a couple of dates. Yeah. They were the first two suspects, if you like, that police... Needed to eliminate. Yeah, and started talking to. And that's what happened there. They, I think... Well, what they didn't do, if we want to go to that now, there was on the Dunny side of the house, on on the other side of the Dunny lane, what I discovered, and this goes to my thing of you know, were there really no witnesses? Yeah. Mm. This this is a a reveal we have here. (laughs) There was an old couple living there. Uh, Gladys and Tom Coventry were living in 149 Easy Street. Yeah. And Mrs. Coventry had seen, seen a man in the back of the house, in the kitchen of the house, in the girl's house, in 147. How do we know this? We know this because one of the detectives, well, our detective, uh, uh, Brian Murphy, who you would know I know, as you can imagine, I've cast as wide a net as I can to yeah, try and yep. find anyone who remembers what went on at the time. Yeah. Some of the police are no longer with us. Luckily, there is um, a then young detective, Peter Hiscock, yeah. who is now, well, no, he wouldn't mind me saying not quite as young, yeah. and he is a private investigator, actually semi-retired, but his memory of it, as you can imagine, he was the first young detective who went into the house. His memory is very good. But Brian Murphy told me initially there had been an old woman who had seen someone next door. And it turns out that even though, from what I can gather, she tried to tell the police what she'd seen, for whatever reason, they didn't take her very seriously. And from what I can gather, if you look at the, the brief that went to the coroner, when it was before the coroner, very quickly, as I understand it, within yep. six months, it was in the coroner's court. Yep. Her name was not mentioned. There is no statement that I've been able to find that she's given it to police. There's been no identikit sketch made of whoever she saw in the house. Now, that in itself is an interesting story, but what makes it, I think, more compelling is that 10 years later, a younger man moved into well, a couple of houses up the street a bit. Yeah. He used the back lane because it, you can imagine the funny old Collingwood streets. Yep. The Dunny Lane went up the back and it ran into, going right, it ran into the back of some other houses next to it. Yep. 
he was using that to clear out his backyard and clear out the lane itself and struck up a friendship of sorts with Mrs Coventry. Who was then a very old woman. He's a history teacher, yeah. Hugh Parry Jones, and he asked her eventually, you know, what do you know about the two young women that were killed next door? And she told him that she'd seen someone, you know, a man in the house, and she added a detail, which was he walked out the back gate carrying a knife. Now, I'm not sure that she told the police that detail. I'm not sure that it's a detail that she added. Yep. You know, yep. we all embellish yep. things. She yep. would have heard what happened eventually to the, you know, pretty quickly, actually. But it's, be- it's believable enough one way or the other. Yeah, but she saw someone yeah. and she told Hugh that, you know, she tried to tell the police, but they just weren't interested. And the impression you get, you can think back, Andrew, to that time. Here's an old lady. She, from, from what I can gather, she's around 84 years of age yeah. at the time of the murders, trying to tell these young detectives yeah. in their suits and ties what she'd seen. Who think we've got a couple of red-hot suspects. Let's not worry too much about what she saw or didn't see. And here's probably an old lady, a bit yeah. older even than their grandma, you know? Exactly. So... You know, it has been suggested, I, I think Hugh says, no, you know, at that time nobody had as much respect for, you know, the elders of our community that we do now. I don't know. I also think, you know, she was a she was a Collingwood girl in a sense, Gladys Coventry, so yeah. she could she probably thought of them as whippersnappers, you know, in their suits and ties. So you can just sort of see why that wasn't gelling. A couple of days after they sent a police surgeon, I believe in, or certainly a doctor of some description in to try and get her to talk a bit more about what she'd seen, but she <laughs> didn't like that and booted him out. Um, so they never seem to have got this. And um, we know that because the history teacher told you? We know that because Brian Murphy remembers that, and he, in fact, thinking back, yeah. the former detective, Brian Murphy, is wondering whether it, is, it wasn't even John Birrell, who, of course, was the police surgeon at the time. Well, and quite possible. Quite possible, and also quite possible because he was so senior, and also quite possible, I reckon, Andrew, because this case was so prominent at that stage. You know, a couple of days after these two young women being found in the house, yeah. why not send him in? You know, such a prominent figure, yes, but also such a, a decent, you know, police surgeon. Go in and talk to Mrs Coventry, but it didn't work. Yeah. Didn't work. It didn't work. And look, to be fair to everyone, let's assume she was right and a man did walk out the back gate with a knife. They they know that a man with a knife killed them. That's without right. doubt, that'll be the case. Unless she could say he was a had red hair and a tattoo on his left wrist or something, an identifying marker, probably it doesn't advance their thesis on who that man was. And that they had their own ideas about who it might be, whether she saw a former boyfriend or 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 whatever didn't matter. They needed to identify who the killer was, not who it wasn't. That's exactly right. And the, and when you think back too, she was sitting in her kitchen, I would say, without the light on. She was just catching yep. the breeze, which is apparently what she used to do through summer. Yep. How much of his face or his body could she have seen? I'm not sure. But once I heard this story, and certainly once Hugh Parry-Jones sort of corroborated, if you like, having met her and described her and she was a great character from from all you know from his reports a really wonderful woman who you know who lived there her husband died about a year after the yeah. or a couple of years after so she was on her own and, and why you know i just wish some a troubled young woman her evil parents 
We never had any issues between us. Has justice been done? I'm in a prison. Join journalist Richard Gilliatt as he delves into one of Australia's most gripping cases. Shadow of Doubt, a new podcast investigation from The Australian. I cannot find one of these allegations that's possible. Listen now, wherever you get your podcasts. Attempt had been made to get a sketch from her, an identical sketch, because that might have gone some way to to telling us or eliminating who we should be looking at. Uh, And if they got it while her memory was fresh and said, now, was this fellow... Uh, up to this nail in the wall, <laughs> you know, an idea of height. It might have helped yeah. um, uh, eliminate certain people from it or, or focus attention on others. Yeah, um, exactly. Yeah, it's an interesting thing. So in the meantime, the police, of course, have got, as they should be, they're going to be interested in those men who are close to those victims. That is, people who knew them, men who knew them. And... Often in homicides, as we all know, it's those who know us best who kill us most. What is the situation, do you think, back then in the weeks after the murders? Who were the police looking at and why? Well, I think they were looking at the two we've already mentioned, Barry, who'd started going out with Suzanne, you know, a couple of weeks before. Right. And and John, who'd stayed overnight. Next door. uh, In the house next door. But also... So John is a truth reporter... Yes. Uh, truth crime reporter, hard living, yes. knockabout, uh, reasonably colourful character in his own uh, way. Is that right? So they knew him and they knew where he said he had been. And he had stayed on the couch in the house next door. I think the reason he was of interest to them too was that he had been uh, in the company of a young woman, Julie Garcia Soleil, who disappeared two years before from. Uh, an apartment in North Melbourne. He and two other men had yep. gone to her apartment and he... A young woman employed at the uh, South Down Press or at the That's right. newspaper or at the Australian. Right. Same same office. That's right. So, so, so he and Barry Woodard were of interest to them straight away, but also... So we haven't really explained Barry Woodard. Barry Woodard was a shearer. Yeah. So he's a country uh, and, boy from up north of Melbourne. Yeah, and he, his brother, Henry, yeah. was going out with Gail Armstrong, Suzanne's sister. middle sister. Yep. And they thought, Henry and Gail thought it would be a good thing to introduce Barry and Suzanne, and they did, Yeah. and just before Christmas, and they started going out. I think they'd been out three times yeah. before this happened, right. and from what Barry says, they were... You know, they really hit it off. They were having a good time together. Yeah. So he had seen her on the Sunday night. In fact, she had taken Greg round to his sister's place in Northcote and they'd had dinner with, uh, that, you know, with basically with Barry's family. So they'd had a nice time and they'd agreed they were going to have dinner again on Tuesday night. So he was chuffing around uh, on his own steam on Monday um, and started calling her uh on Tuesday to just make sure, you know, that that date was still on. Couldn't raise her. Eventually, over a couple of days, this sort of really sort of started bugging him. And he and his brother, Henry, went round to the house at Easy Street. So this was on Wednesday night, two nights after the girls had been killed. And they went in up the back lane from from what um, the police statements and what the coroner was told. They went up the back lane, went into the kitchen, 
couldn't, you know, sang so out. So, in other words, down the side of the house, a lane yes. beside the house, and then That's turned. Right. Uh, okay. So they went down the side of the house, yeah. in through the back gate, yeah, and turned left again and went into the the kitchen. You know, the the back of the house. And what people need to remember: this is uh, like a American school, a shotgun shack. They're a long, narrow cottage with uh, a long, skinny hallway starting at the front door with a whole lot of rooms opening off that hallway. So uh, the house is linear. Is that right? Exactly. And the back, so the kitchen at the back. uh, And the bathroom. In the bathroom were a long way from the front door where the action was. Yeah, that's right. And so to go to see the front door, you had to go in through the kitchen, in through the little lounge room, sort of turn right again, go through the doorway and look up the hallway. Right. Um, and the two young men, the boys have always said they didn't go beyond the kitchen. They sang out. Henry, I think, wanted to go up, you know, a bit further. Um, but Barry said, no, no, don't. He thought it was, you know, too impolite to go further. So he left the note, put it under the ashtray, saying to Suzanne, call, left his number. And then they went out the same way they came in, out the back door of the kitchen and out the back gate and then up the lane back into Easy Street. Which, regardless of anything, is a, a plausible enough. It's quite plausible, I believe. We don't know who did what and who didn't do what, but there's nothing inherently wrong with that scenario. No, there's not. And, uh, you know, you may think, particularly with 40 years hindsight, gee, why didn't they go into the lounge and up the hallway? Because for the very reason they said, it would yeah, seem exactly. impolite. That's right. And You're snooping beyond the kitchen of somebody else's house. So they're two young men the police want to have a chat to, and they do. They do. The other person they talk to, as unbelievable as it sounds, the night before that, yeah. a friend of Susan Bartlett's has gone through also trying to get in contact with her and getting a bit worried. He thinks maybe he's got the wrong phone number somehow. Right. He and a friend go round, walk up the, the laneway. Laneway go in, they realise her, her her bedroom uh, window, which is on the side of the house, and yep. they're so therefore opening on two. And these are the days when there are no bars on windows. So he gets a leg up, goes in through her bedroom, which is the third bedroom, so the closest to the lounge and the kitchen, just goes through the bedroom, into the hallway, turns right, into the lounge room, checks the phone number, which is on the sort of hanging on the wall, goes back out, but the light's not on in the hallway. I think there is a light uh, in the kitchen. Right. Just goes back out. Right. Same way he's come in, and they go thinking, okay, well, I'll just keep calling. I see. So that's a very interesting development, isn't it? Because it does show uh, to, let's say, Defence Council that unless you've got a conspiracy of four men acting independently of each other but, but conspiring, unless you have a conspiracy, which is obviously ridiculous, that it was quite... Uh, possible and plausible for two separate pairs of men to go to that house and go inside the house, one of them through a window, for goodness sake, and not see the bodies. It, it does show the entry of the second guy that you've described through the window who uh-huh. goes then through the, through the bedroom and out into the hallway and then turns back and goes through the living room and into the kitchen. That would indicate that it is sufficiently dark in that hallway not to see the mayhem that was in there. And your description of the shotgun shack is a good one because it, uh, yeah. it gives you an idea but, of how long so, that little... It's a little house, but it's a long corridor. And really, that fact, the fact that that man did that, can easily 
to some extent, for defence purposes, write the Woodard brothers out of it because obviously it's dark enough that you wouldn't see anything, particularly if you didn't go into the hallway. Exactly. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah, that's right. And so I, I'm just throwing up a defence scenario and saying it's not only plausible; it's um, it's better than plausible. Is that, yeah, and yeah. let's be let's be fair and you know factual here. All these men who were say initial suspects, if we want if we want to use that term, have since been cleared of at course. least twice. That, and with DNA testing. That's right. So what we're talking about are the people closest to it who were eliminated first. Yeah, that's right. Or, okay, and, and eliminated over and again. Early suspects and then early eliminations. Yeah, which is a topic we'll get to because that in itself is interesting. <laughs> Elimination and methods of. There's two two lots of uh, men who have been to the house during the period after the murders but before the bodies are discovered. Uh, we've also got the guy next door, John Grant, who uh, happened to be next door and who happens by chance to have a, a sort of a geographic link with another strange disappearance. This is not not casting any nasturtiums at John Grant. This is no. merely pointing out why he was in, of interest to the police. But I must say, at this point, Andrew, you know, you have written about this case for decades, literally. I have spent the last two years researching it. In that time, no one on the current homicide squad was was allowed to speak to me. I mean, there's a different, very different culture now yeah. about dealing with media when, yeah, you know, a journalist true. is doing a project like this. And at the moment, they, well, it was put to me very clearly. There was no, there's nothing to be gained by talking to you, basically. And really, to be fair, that's because they have no more up their sleeve, I would suggest, than they had 40 years ago. Well, that would seem to be the case in terms of what we're not hearing. We're hearing nothing. And yet at, right at the end of writing this book, yeah. I began to get a sense that perhaps, and you know, we can only hope that this is true, perhaps there was some movement there. Right. Now, without revealing sources, you have certain sources on this story which suggest that the police are quietly confident of some development. Is that overstating it? No, no. I think that's very fairly stating it. Right. But I honestly you don't can't. know what the specifics of those developments, if you like. Right. Fair enough. Uh, now, let's go to DNA. We're going to talk about some fairly uh, confronting issues here. It's a terrible subject. Terrible things happened. And there's no point shrinking uh, from the facts, although perhaps we'll soften some of the details. Yes. It would appear on face value that Suzanne Armstrong was the, the initial target of the attack as a, an object of sexual interest, let's say. Does that make sense? Yes. Just describe to the listeners how she was in bed, we think, uh, when somebody has come into the house, either through the front door, through the, up the hallway, whatever, when she's been disturbed. We know that, do we, because she was reading Roald Dahl's collection of stories, um, perhaps called Switch Bitch, maybe? Yes. Yep. And she turned it face down and put it down on the bed to, to keep her and the place. And the, the sheets were just sort of turned Neatly down. over as if she was just calmly getting out of bed as you just turn the sheet back. Right. So it would appear that somebody 
has turned up. It hasn't alarmed her initially, or not alarmed her a lot. She's put her book down. She's got out of bed without disturbing the bed much and gone to see who this person is. And what we don't know is whether it was a stranger or someone she knew. Is that fair enough? That's fair, yep. Okay. It would then appear that she's been attacked, that whatever happened soon developed into an attack with a knife and probably some form of rape scene. Is that is that a fair summary? Yes. Uh, because what the police found, and do you want me to describe this or do you want to describe it? No, no you can describe it. What the police found, I think, is um, Suzanne Armstrong's almost naked body on the floor, spread-eagled. Is that fair? Yes. Uh, and they found a lot of blood uh, because she'd been stabbed so much and signs of struggle and so on. But they also found semen, which had lodged somewhere beneath her buttocks on the floor and would indicate that perhaps either some sort of sexual intercourse had happened, probably a rape, either just before she was murdered or even just after. Is that true? That's right. It appears that the police would have uh, taken swabs of that bodily fluid and kept it. Is that true? Yes. And... Of course, this is 1977. DNA in 1977 is science fiction. It, mm-hmm. You know, I don't think it was even a thing. But, of course, within 20-odd years, it is a thing. By the 90s, DNA is very much a thing, <clears throat> although the technology was not as good in the 90s as it is now. Mm. And by 1998, I think I'm right in saying, almost 22 years later, the police are steadily eliminating their list, short list of potential suspects. Is that true? Yep. And my impression is that they were fairly confident in the late 90s that they could go through a short list of, let's say, eight, maybe a dozen suspects, and that they would get a hit from the, on the DNA. They would match the semen sample and go, bingo, we got him. Yep. That's what they thought. Well, that's what they were hoping. And this, they went, of course, up to central Victoria and they found the Shearing brothers, Barry and Henry. And they went to, uh, no doubt, they went to John Grant, I imagine. And they went to several other people. One of them, perhaps, a very famous uh, racing driver, maybe. But uh, they went to several other people and uh, they eliminated them one, one by one until I think they got down to one name, of a person who had gone to England or perhaps back to England. And this must have been some sort of itinerant person known to uh, the two Susans, Suzanne and Susan, who had gone, I think, returned to England post-1977 and was known by the police to be living in a Kent seaside town called Margate. Is that right? Yes. And in 1998, two homicide squad detectives, Steve Tregard and his boss, Rod Collins, went to the UK on other business. They had to go there for something else, maybe to pick up a prisoner. And while there, they very um, efficiently used their time to arrange uh, with Scotland Yard to collar this former traveller down at Margate and say, um, we've got you in here to talk to you about um, shoplifting. Not really. We actually want a blood sample. And um, 
they got a blood sample from this fellow and they thought that's good, that's the only one we need now, the only one left on the list. And they took the blood sample all the way back to Melbourne in their luggage so they had continuity of um, possession, which you need for court purposes. And they gave it to the laboratory who tested it. And what happened? No match. Not a match. Now, that, it seems to me, is when the reinvestigation of Easy Street ran out of puff. Am I right? Yeah, well, or you can look at it the other way and say that's when the reinvestigation... Started in earnest. ...started again, was reignited because... Much better way to look at it. Yeah, well, they had the DNA sample. Yep. And you're right, you know, 1998, by 2000, 2001, the Homicide Squad, as I understand it, is going through a a revamping, and so suddenly there's a cold case unit for the first time looking at cases just like this. And over the next few years, this like so many other cases that haven't been solved for such a long time, you know, you can imagine our sense of frustration is one thing, but imagine being detectives working with these matters all the time, and particularly a case like this, Andrew, you'd want to give it every bit of attention that it deserves, wouldn't you? You would. In closing, now, our listeners, are many of them are going to be interested in this case and many of them are going to want to read your book. And I don't want you to reveal everything that you've found that's in the book. But can you just run us quickly through those elements that will be of interest to even to people that know quite a lot about it already? Well, I think the one thing that maybe I should have touched on when we were talking about the closest witness that, you know, I think we can believe whatever it is Gladys Coventry saw, we'll never really know exactly, but clearly this elderly woman did see Someone, yep, a true. man, leaving the house, yep. in the house, and then leaving the house on the night the two young women were killed. So Great detail, yep. Yep. So there's that detail, but also the night before the bodies were found, a young man living a couple of doors away, in fact, strangely, in a case full of these sorts of coincidences in the same house, his family had been living in the house for, for many years, that Hugh Parry Jones eventually moved oh, into. Oh, yep, yep. The so, yeah, I'm with you. His, yeah, his family were away. His yeah. name's Peter Sellers. His family had been away on a holiday up north. He'd stayed and he had a mate round. On the night of the murders, yeah. they'd been sitting up and just, you know, having a, a drink and yeah. watching telly. Gone to bed around 2, 2.30 that morning. He says he heard a front door slam and then a car with its engine on, two car door slam, yep. and then it takes off. Right. Now, when his mum and dad and his sister get back a couple of days later, he tells them this. He also sees on the Wednesday night two young men and a woman, a young woman, on the edge of the Dunny Lane, if you like, uh, that runs along the side of Easy Street, the 147 Easy Street. And one of the men walks up into the lane. So he doesn't really think very much of that at all at the time. But by the time he realises what's happened, he tells his mum about what he saw and also what he heard on the night the girls were killed and is just waiting, you know, for the police to come and talk to him because his mum gives this information to one of the young police officers or detectives who, you know, were doing door knocks up and down the street. And he wrote Peter's name into his notebook and put a little asterisk next to it because his mum told him this. And he waited and waited 
and they never came back. Now, what that tells us is not necessarily that that guy's got the key to the to the whole story or going to you know solve it. But what it tells us is that this is a reasonably haphazard investigation at the time. And from what I've been told, Andrew, there were 16 detectives working in homicide for the whole of Victoria. Yeah. So this, once they can't solve it as quickly as they think they were going to solve it, and they did think they were going to solve it quickly initially, they did. Yes. It becomes just, well, not just another case, but becomes another part of their workload. Uh, Is it true to say that over the years people have been surprised at what a tiny file Easy Street is that when they pick it up it's one manila folder with you know 24 pages or something yes well certainly if you go to public records and have a look at the you know the file in the coroner's the coroner's inquest file it, that's what shocked me yeah. but then maybe that's because now the amount of written you know notation and documentation that would be given to a coroner in a case like this would be much much more vast uh, in closing, have you got a, a hunch? Uh, and you may not spell out what that hunch is because of defamation, but do you have a, a, a sense of which way you'd be surprised or not surprised if indeed it's ever sold? I have a hope, Andrew, more than a hunch, that perhaps the police do have some new information, do have some sense of new direction that might lead to this being somehow resolved. Right. Because the thing, I guess the thing that we've all had to sort of face, and and you you can only feel for the families, particularly in this regard, is that the person who committed this terrible crime could well have passed away in the last 42 years. Is there not a very long list, and I mean by this 130 or something, very long list of but people that the police need to eliminate, but many of them are no, no longer with us. Is that true? I could never verify that figure, but I would no. imagine that it would be something like that, yes. So there's so many potential suspects that it makes it very difficult, especially with the passage of time. And, you know, forensic experts suggest that the best way, even now, of eliminating people and then finding the person is to still do a really big dragnet, if you like, of, um, you know, DNA tests. Yeah. So that, he, you know, you, you try and find all the people, all the men who were living in and around True. Collingwood, particularly yep. Easy Street, and you just eliminate them, as has happened in instances internationally that we know yep. of. But, gee, you know, that takes a lot of resourcing, a lot of funding, and a lot of this new technology. And... I don't know. And meanwhile, you're not solving six other murders. Exactly. That's 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 a legitimate uh, worry. You know, you can't tie up all the resources on one old case when there's so many new ones happening. Yeah, and if you're going to do that, which case is it? You know, and how do you make that judgment? How do you make that assessment? Exactly right. Helen Thomas, thanks for your time. It's uh, been most interesting, and I, for one, will be rereading the book. I did have the privilege of reading your manuscript, and I look forward to reading the edited version of the book, which um, I'm sure will find a home in a lot of uh, Australian houses. Andrew, I'm going to send you your copy right now. Thank you. Thanks for listening, and watch out for Helen's new book on bookshelves or wherever you get your digital reading.
Access a world of true crime podcasts on CrimeX Plus, where award-winning journalists take a deep dive into unsolved cases. Every week, we're waking up to a dead woman, a dead mother, sister, auntie, grandmother. It's not good enough. From the team that brought you The Teacher's Pet, Shadow of Doubt, and Dying Rose, unlock early, ad-free, and bonus content from brand new series and flagship shows such as I Catch Killers with Gary Jubilin. One was shot in the mouth, and I thought he was dead. Another one had been shot with a shotgun and I got the overspray. Search for Crimex Plus on Apple Podcasts to start digging deep into the world of true crime.